You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Show, episode 193. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook, and keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. It's great to be back with you this week and to be kicking off an exciting new year. We have a packed show for you. Aaron will regale us with a review of the markets for 2022, the TSX versus the U.S. performance, uh, top and worst performing sectors, momentum at the end of 2022, and he'll discuss if energy will continue to outperform in 2023. I will answer a listener question in our Your Stock Our Take segment on fintech Mogo Inc., symbol M-O-G-O on the TSX, which has entered a restructuring plan to deliver profitability for its shareholders. The stock is down 75% over the last year, so something definitely needs to change. And Brennan proves to us that he can indeed read, who knew, by giving us some quotes from a book he is purportedly reading by legendary investor Peter Lynch in our Investor Spotlight segment. Finally, Brett handles our star and dog of the week, the latter being embattled once tech darling Tesla, symbol TSL, on the NASDAQ, which continued its precipitous slide over the past week. The stock is down 70% over the past year. The former and the former and star of the week is little-known Canadian microcap, a name we have highlighted for the past several years in our Canadian cash-rich small-cap report, which is due out near the end of this month. IBEX Technology Inc., symbol IBT on the TSX Venture. The stock is up 58% over the past month. Brett lets you know if it is sustainable. So let's get to the show. I'm going to welcome my co-host, Aaron, and the killer bees, Brett and Brennan. How are you guys doing? It's a new year. Whoa, has everything changed? Good. Happy lives? New Year. Nothing much. Happy New Year to everybody Happy out there. Happy New Year. For sure. No, we'll start things off looking good. That. Excited for 2023. See what happens. Always nice to start a year. Yeah, yeah. Get, getting older, it's amazing. 6,500 yeah. contribution to our TFSA this year, so going to be adding that ASAP. Brennan's losing it. Ooh. He's loving it. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you're nice. reading a book, Brennan? I am reading a well, book, yes. purportedly. Uh, yeah. Yes. Is one, this part of your New Year's resolution? Um. Yeah. One up yeah. on Wall Street? One yeah. up on How Wall Street. How far are you in so far? Um, not very far one on this page. one, just the introduction. Okay. Yes. Um, He's read but the I, cover. So yeah. you started it. Yes, last I, summer or what? <laughs> two days ago. Two days ago. So uh, I'll be I'll be interact. You know, one thing we could actually do is as uh, we could do book, book summaries on investment yeah. books. Yeah, or book reviews, book summaries. Yep. Like do those as separate, maybe a little bit like a really shortened summary for the for the show, but then also add you know a, a ten minute summary or something for the yep. to the YouTube. Channel. I actually bought so a lot of people like that. I actually bought Irrational Exuberance. Is that the one by Schiller? Is that Schiller? I think Schiller. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, you yeah. recommended that to me. I've bought it, sitting on my bookshelf, haven't opened it yet. But uh, no, I have been on a reading kick, though. I have been on a reading kick lately. Yeah. So you know, I've been crushing some books and 
this is the next one. Irrational exuberance. I mean, it's it's not a difficult read. It's but it's a thick read. It's pretty mm-hmm. dense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, this one's that fits well with thin. Brennan. Then pretty dense. So yeah. let's. Uh, I'm reading. Um, I'm reading uh, the third Harry Potter book. So I'll provide a review of that, or I'll get <laughs> nice. my daughter to provide a review of that to everybody when we're done. Now this must be not the first time you've read. Oh no, I read them all the too. Third, yeah. or read them with. Um, uh, Eric as well so like yeah we yeah yeah it was good oh, it's so this good is we the read... first time you're reading them with your daughter yeah that. for sure we read them yeah. and uh well she's actually reading them to me too as well she's a better reader than you now but of I mean, course I don't doubt yeah. it you well I mean, she is actually a very strong reader but she, she is pretty she's low. a damn good reader yeah. which is awesome yeah I mean we whereas you are encourage you know, it I really. you know struggle at the best of times yeah right? so it's not a financial statement it's hard for me to read right let's just do it real right you know i just on a side note i actually went through a period where i just i wouldn't read much outside of work at all mm. i really got more into audiobooks um but the reason was is because we do so much reading mm. for our work right like i find that yeah. press releases financial reports and i just found that after you finish a day of that the last thing i wanted to do was look at um print yeah right i wanted to you know like yeah. like youtube videos or um uh audiobooks mm. Yeah, it's kind of what I gravitated to, and and then, but I find it kind of goes off and on. Then you you rekindle your love for, for print, um, and then you kind of get bored of it. Yeah, I yeah. think it's pretty. Well, we do a lot of reading like in, our, sure. in our work, so it's just it's when you're reading for several hours a day for work, it's uh, yeah, not the first thing you necessarily want to do when you get off work. I like it's true. It is like always buying. good to read, but it, we do yeah. do a lot. I Sorry, like buying what, the print books. You know, it's like the the Seinfeld mm-hmm. skit where George. Is basically saying they're my trophies. They're my trophies. And displaying them mm-hmm. and just displaying, and displaying them. them exactly. Yeah, of yeah. course. George never actually read any of <laughs> yeah, them. No, That's usually same people that Brandon. look at books as trophies don't actually <laughs> hey, read them. You know, they just put them where everybody about can see. Twenty percent of all my books on my bookshelf have been read, but uh, yeah. yeah. Well, he, well, he displays not, them. Hey, hey ladies, yeah. look That's at these. That's not bad. Exactly. That's not bad. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm an ebook guy. Like mm-hmm. when I discovered ebooks on the iPad, I never turned back. I think it's great because. One, my wife hates a collection of just things that sit on the shelf and, and don't get used or once they're used, they do nothing. So I can buy whatever books I want and not have to explain them. Um, but then also I just find that it's just um, the light from the iPad kind of gets your eyes more engaged. You can like take notes in the iPad. You can, you know, you'll always have your book there. I've had it where I've had books that I read and I hadn't touched them for years. And then I'm doing a cleaning of my place and I I'm like, Oh, I'm not going to read this thing again. And then I want to read the book again, but it's gone right mm-hmm. years later. So this way you just, you always have them there and yep. your notes and everything. So for sure. So did you guys make any new year's resolutions this year? Did anybody, did anyone read more books? <laughs> Seriously. Back to though, the read books. More books. We're trying to get away from this. Um, no. I'm sorry. Um, no, it's good. Go to the gym regularly. Um, yeah, that's a common one, right? Um, yeah. Like I was just telling the guys earlier, my grandma made a bunch of Christmas baking and I've been absolutely crushing it. So uh, <laughs> that's your revelation. I've been, <laughs> I've been off to, to a, crush a, the baking. A, I've been off to a bad start. So, uh, yeah. yeah. What about Aaron, you anything? I don't make New Year's resolutions, no. to be honest. I mean, I'll, I'll make goals for myself throughout the year, but it's not like I'm not a but, New Year's resolution. But you're perfect guys. as is, so what do you need, right? You don't need anything <laughs> yeah. else, right? It's true. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's not what Ryan was saying <laughs> before the camera turned on. But uh, Brad, it's not, anything? not what I hear. He's been you saying anything, behind Brad? my back. 
No, Aaron's no, been rubbing like, off not- on me too much. Yeah, yeah. I, I keep saying this. It's 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 a bit disturbing at this point. <laughs> yes. What's that? What's disturbing? Uh, you're being rubbing more and off more like on. you every day. Yeah. More and more like me. Yeah. Oh, end it. Exactly. End it right now. <laughs> <laughs> what about All right. Let, let's get into the show. No one cares about our resolutions. Brett's on a bad Brad. path, man. Yeah. Ryan's going to so, stop complaining about Ryan, the, uh, the, the Canucks. The Canucks. Anyways. Stop sorry. complaining. I'm going to start <laughs> complaining more Anyways. publicly. Maybe write a blog or something. That's. <laughs> So, Aaron, you want to do a review of this past year and uh, looking a little bit. Sure, why not? I'm going to inundate everybody with a bunch of charts. What do you, what do you oh, guys thrilling. think about that? Do it. Yeah. Just, do we have uh, to read any the... of them? No, I'm just going to walk you through. It's going to be quick. But I just figured, you know, we're at the start of 2023. Why not just take a look at the market performance over the past year? Um, yeah, and for the people on the, the podcast, Aaron will explain sectors. them. Eric will explain these charts that he's got on there right uh yeah sure i mean it's it's you know you could (laughs) easily follow along just just by the explanation it's not not a big deal um but anyway so i just want to start take a look home country index index the tsx index how did it do in um in 2022 so overall the tsx index was down 8.5 percent for the year so you know not a great performance obviously but when we compare this to the u.s it actually does look pretty good. So looking at the S&P 500, uh, down 19.4%, so almost 20% for 2022. And why is this significant? Well, this is significant because I think this is the first time in 10 years that the Canadian index has outperformed the US index. And um, you know, I could be wrong. Maybe there's one year in, in, the, in the past decade where it's outperformed. But generally, we've been a perpetual underperformer relative to the US. Now, of course, our one year of outperformance doesn't actually mean we generate positive returns for the TSX, but uh, this is still a deviation from what we've seen over the past decade. And one of the reasons um, why this has been the case, uh, and this is a systemic issue with the, with the Canadian market, is that we are highly concentrated up here in Canada. Um, resources, banks, or financials, those two sectors alone generally account for about half of our stock market. Um, and in the financial sector, most of that is the are the big six banks, right? But very highly levered to oil and gas, which has not performed well for most of the last decade, but did perform well over the last year. Whereas the US, highly levered towards technology, which has performed very well over the last decade, but not over the last year. Now, uh, the S&P 500, that's a wide mix of companies. But if you want to look at the NASDAQ in the US, this is the tech heavy index. This is where most of the tech companies are located is in the NASDAQ. Uh, NASDAQ was down 33% for 2022. So that is an absolutely horrid performance. And that comes down to major underperformance, primarily from the technology sector. Now, 33% doesn't even really tell the full story. We've talked about some individual companies, um, some of some of the companies that were the top performing names over the previous couple of years, um, like the Zooms, you know, the DocuSigns, really strong pandemic stories. A lot of the 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 um, high growth mid cap um, SaaS stock software as a service software companies. Um, many of those names are down 70, 80, 90 plus percent in 2022. So it's uh it, it had been a absolutely disastrous year for the technology sector in the U.S. Now, let's talk about some top performers. Well, of course, energy has been the main focus uh, in, in the past year here. And um, 
because the the it's essentially energy is the reason why the performance of the TSX was not worse than the 8.5%. It really boosted it. So TSX energy index was up 31% in 2022. Absolutely great performance there. Um, whereas the technology sector in Canada was down uh, 29%, right? So this is Canadian technology down 29%. Now, the top technology company in Canada being Shopify was down much more than that. I don't know, Brett, if you want to pull up the, the 2022 um, decline for Shopify, just so we could have it at some point in the conversation here. I don't have it handy. But uh, Shopify was at one point, I believe, the largest stock by market cap in the Canadian market. I think it was about half or more of the entire technology sector. And this goes once again to the high concentration that the Canadian market has um, on a number of different levels. But uh, Shopify's performance, while I don't have the specific number, was absolutely horrid. Minus 67% over the year. Minus 67% for the year. Um, and, you know, this was, I believe, the largest company by market cap in Canada at one point, um, bigger than even the big banks, and essentially uh, dominating the Canadian technology space. But... Um, Technology actually was not the worst performing sector in Canada, surprisingly. I thought it would be. It was actually the healthcare sector, the healthcare index, down 56% uh, in Canada in 2022. Now, I, I think that, you know, the Canadian healthcare sector, it's it's or the index, rather, uh, it's a bit of a strange index because it, we don't have a lot of, um, you know, what you would consider to be traditional, conventional healthcare companies in Canada that are publicly traded like they do in the U.S., for a variety of reasons. So a lot, the healthcare sector overall, or index overall is very small relative to other sectors in Canada. Um, and in addition, our cannabis stocks are also considered healthcare companies for the purpose of, of the index. So um, this index does include Canadian cannabis companies. Personally, I don't understand why they would be in healthcare. Most of them are selling primarily into the recreational cannabis market, uh, which, which to me is a consumer product. It's not a healthcare product. If they're medicinal, I can understand healthcare. Um, but anyways, down 56% in 2022. Um, and then a, a look at the U.S. Technology Index. Uh, so this is the S&P Information Technology Index. So down 56% in. Sorry, that is wrong. Um, I have a wrong number there. So can you just uh, work the number for me here, Brett? Um, it ended the year at 2139 and started at about 3,100. Can you work that percentage for me? Yeah, sorry, 56%. That was from the previous slide, um, but still a, a major decline Down 31%. here. Yeah, we're looking about a 31% decline, US technology index. Sorry about that. And then uh, I, felt, I felt as well, I mean, the, these numbers that I've, that I've shown you, they really cover the entire year, but I also felt that, you know, maybe it'd be a good idea if we looked at just what sectors had the most momentum coming out of 2022, because a lot of people will, will, you know, make the presumption that, you know, if, if a sector had really great performance across the year, that meant that it performed well in the latter part of the year, and maybe it has good momentum going into 2023. Uh, not really the case. Um, if we take the top performing sector energy in Canada, performance over the, si the last six weeks of the year, um, the sector was down, the index was down 12%. So that great performance that we saw throughout the year did not translate into strong momentum going out uh, towards the end of the year. Now, six weeks, that's a, a fairly arbitrary 
um, number. But, you know, essentially what it just shows is that the sector was, uh, the, the momentum really died down towards the very end. And then if we look at a, one of the worst uh, areas of the market, so the NASDAQ 2022, last six weeks, um, still not great, but not as bad. So down 8.5%. So a little bit better performance than energy um, coming, out of, coming out of the year. Now, what does this mean? Well, it doesn't really mean anything. Um, this is just informational. But I'm sure a lot of people are wondering now, okay, 2022, that's in the rear view. Um, what are we looking at for 2023? Can we still expect technology to outperform? Can we still expect energy to outperform? Well, I would be uh, cautious on an expectation that energy will continue to outperform in 2023. Now, this is not a prediction. It's just a concern. So if we were to look, for example, at uh, crude oil prices, um, this is a, a like one-year chart. Um, we're basically ending the year roughly where we began at about $78 per barrel of WTI. Uh, you know, that's that's down from a, a peak of, you know, $115 to $120 per barrel. Um, so in the last half of the year, really, um, the momentum on commodity prices, energy commodity prices was not very strong. And the same statement can be made for natural gas as well. Um, really volatile throughout the year, basically ending the year where it began uh, about 394 um, for natural gas. And that's down from about 950 at the very peak in September. So the last several months, uh, weak, weak momentum for natural gas. Now, these commodities are also very seasonal. I'm not adjusting for seasonality. That needs to be considered too. But it's just something to consider when we are looking at which sectors are going to outperform in 2023. Rather than trying to make a guess at which sector is going to outperform, you know, we have our own strategies um, for, for picking winners. And that's, not to, and that's to be more or less sector agnostic. Look at the individual companies and build that portfolio that has a mix of different types of companies in strong growth areas. So you know, technology is going to be one of those areas. But we've seen what happens when you completely lever your, your portfolio to technology. Um, so it's an important part of the portfolio. It's not all the portfolio. Some people are going to want to have commodity exposure in there as well, um, energy, natural gas. Uh, but given the volatility in that space, we suggest that that, uh, that, that exposure is, is controlled and moderated and you're not overexposed to highly cyclical sectors. Totally. Excellent. Oh, and just another comment just on energy as well. Um, just given that it, it, it got so much press this year, uh, over the past year for the great performance, you know, when we look at how energy has performed over the last 10 years, it's really almost negligible return. I mean, a lot of volatility, um, but, you know, it, start, it, it ended a great year in 2022, roughly where it was um, at the end of 2012 with a lot of volatility in between. And if we didn't have this last bull run, um, you know, previous to this year, it was it, it was almost straight down. So that just illustrates how volatile the space can be. Again, having some exposure to it, good idea. Having too much exposure to it can um, be disastrous. Excellent. Perfect. Yeah, like I'd like to, uh, to say... Yeah, just, I mean, just on... Just on yeah, go what ahead, do you want to go? Well, just on the say... energy and... and... Well, okay, Let go, Brennan go, talk because he started first. Well, no, yeah, it's Brennan. just Ryan and myself talked about this yesterday. We literally had this conversation saying, you know, <laughs> we're seeing oil back to, you know, levels which were at the beginning of 2022. <laughs> they went, you know, they were elevated throughout 2022. Going into 2023, 
if oil just remains in the exact same position that it's going to be, these companies are going to have difficult comparables to report against. So, you know, revenue is likely going to go down uh, and earnings are likely going to go down unless they can increase production. So, you know, going into 2023, if we continue to see oil in this range, there's going to be tough comparables and some tough financials to post against, uh, maybe not as much growth or maybe no growth um, that like we saw in 2022. Um, but anyways, sorry, Ryan, I cut you off twice. Yeah, I would just over the last several weeks and even during the course of 20, you know, the end ending part of 2022, we've had a number of clients and potential clients reach out and say, uh, should I be in energy? I, I should be all over energy. You know, it did well last year. And like chasing a sector like that is often a fool's game. And, you know, we just saw those charts, like many of those companies, unless we see seasonal jump ups in the price, like natural gas is down over 50% in the past, like over the last half of this year. And just, I mean, it's dropped precipitously just in the last month. So you're going to compare those numbers. If natural gas stays in its current range, which is one of the possibilities, if it goes lower, if it does two of those things, the year over year results will be very poor relative to where they were last year. If it goes up, it has to go up significantly again. It can start to compare or maybe start to be above. So like that's one scenario. Only if you have a significant increase from where you are in either oil and natural gas uh, with a commensurate, either equal production or higher production, that's when you will get better results, which will drive the stock higher. But you're, you know, in, in two scenarios, essentially flat or going down, you're going to see significantly lower results in these companies year over year, which, you know, we don't know which way it's going to go. That doesn't sound like the greatest bet to me. Um, and you are just betting on the price of energy. And if you look back at energy, like Aaron said, over 10 years, those stocks are actually lower than they were um, at the, you know, this time 10 years ago. So uh, you know, the, if you look at if Aaron had the information technology, he's put that up before that sector, despite the losses that we saw there over the past year, it's up significantly after the past 20 years, for example. So even after the losses we saw over the past year, the last thing I'd say, can you guys tell me the index in North America that actually underperformed all of those indexes that Aaron put up? Can anybody tell me that? Venture. There you go. The TSX Venture down Thirty-nine percent over the past year—a very impressive performance for that index. Once again, maybe I can get in a fight with the CEO of that index once again, as I as I did after a speech on that exchange a few years ago, just prior to COVID. So maybe we'll tweet that out there with the performance of that index over the past year. When uh, commodities, which you know, there's a lot of junior commodity-based businesses on there, did relatively well. You know, at least for part of the year, it had a very Okay. Just, so just on your comments on 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 the Nasdaq there, so uh, technology index. So you know you're looking at about yeah about two hundred and fifty percent return um, over that period of time. Yeah, from the Nasdaq, tremendous, right? Index, and that includes the big drop that they had yeah. over the last year, right? As opposed to you putting your money to work in energy, for example, over that period, a negative return, right? So. You know, one year does not a sector make or an investment philosophy make. Uh, I wouldn't base your uh, investment philosophy on what a segment of the market did, did in one year. So let's uh, move on to our next segment. We're done there. 
Aaron, you're done. Nothing yeah. else. Okay, yep. good. I'm going to look at um, our your stock. Our take a question came in on a company called Mogo Inc. Symbol M-O-G-O on the TSX. We've interviewed this management team. They're actually from Vancouver. We ended up talking to them in California at an event. Uh, the stock price is 82 cents. Stock is down 77% over the past year and over 94% since its 2021 highs. Market cap is just under uh, 62 million. There's no dividend here. The company, I'm going to describe it. They're a fintech company. They state they have 2 million members, which they assist with simple digital solutions to get control of their financial health. Um, they have a free app, the Mogo app. Consumers can access a digital spending account, get free monthly credit score monitoring and ID fraud protection, as well as personal loans and mortgages. The company also owns Mogo Trade, and that app offers commission-free stock trading. And together with Moco, their wholly owned subsidiary, brings automated, fully managed flat fee investing to Canadians. Well, let's look at the good here in terms of the recent financial results. Revenue was up 12% year over year. Members were up 17% year over year. Adjusted OPEX or operating expenses were down 24% and adjusted EBITDA was up 32%. So the member growth here, if you look back to Q1 uh, of the year or Q3, sorry, of last year, it was at about 1.77 million. It's at 2.21 million as at uh, Q3. So year over year, significant growth there. There's cost savings and initiative was put forward to restructure and cost savings initiatives have been going forward with this business. They drove improvement in OPEX. OPEX was down 24% uh, and adjusted EBITDA again, improved 32%. The okay here after the bad is the balance sheet. As at September 30th, um, in their presentation, Mogo states that they hold $106 million in cash investments and digital assets on the balance sheet we see 35 million in cash that is down from 69 million at the start of 2021 so that's quite a decline and under investment accounted for using the equity method we see 56.13 million that's down from 103.82 million at the start of 2021 uh, this is basically the company's strategic investment in CoinSquare, one of Canada's leading digital asset trading platforms. We've seen trading volumes are down significantly even since September, and we will I will guess here that there'll be another write-down in the value of this investment coming soon. Uh, the company also has $47.7 million under a credit facility and $39.69 million in debentures. The credit facility is at a variable rate and now substantially higher rate than at the start of the year uh, last year. Uh, it's subject to certain covenants and events of default. So as at September 30th, I'll make it clear 2022, the company was in compliance with these covenants. But if asset values on the balance sheet continue to drop and cash flow is negative, it is something to watch. Not in trouble as of the last report, but something to watch here. The bad here. Well, we said adjusted EBITDA was up, but it is still negative for the last quarter negative 2.8 million in adjusted EBITDA. And the adjusted net loss was 8.4 million. As at the end of Q3, Mogo has an accumulated deficit of 239 million. So our take here, businesses, startups are great and new tech and growing a user base takes a great deal of time. But at some point, a company has to start generating cash flow and operate off of that cash flow. 
Mogo is not a terrible venture. In fact, it is admirable the company has been able to generate 2 million members. But those members need to be monetized into a profitable model. Otherwise, for shareholders, what is the point of the venture? Mogo currently has its restructuring plan. It's focused on accelerating the company's path towards profitability. This is good, but with this plan comes an expected 10 to 15% impact on quarterly revenue in the near term due to cost cutting essentially. So without the constant spending, growth suffers. The question is, was the company just buying growth in an easy money market with a business model that is not just not that profitable, if at all? The market is clearly stating they're skeptical. There is likely some value here in the customer base and the tech, and perhaps Mogo is purchased on the cheap at some point, but we do not invest based on that criteria. We will monitor Mogo's restructuring to profitability progress, but we prefer to invest in cash flowing growth businesses at reasonable prices versus cash flow negative business with the hope of future profitability. Just too much risk and not enough upside. We find more upside in the businesses with the other uh, profile. Yep. So anybody want to discuss that? Well, we, uh, we followed Mogo more closely a couple of years ago. We actually met with the CEO when we were at a conference in Los Angeles. And yeah. I believe that they, at least on an adjusted basis, at one point, it looked like they were becoming profitable. They're starting to look a little more interesting. Um, you know, one thing that um, I didn't like about the business is that they were a bit of a hybrid company. They had the fintech side mm -hmm. and they had a side that was just more traditional finance where they had a loans portfolio. Um, so it was, you know, not a, totally simple to, to separate the two. Um, I've, I figured, you know, either you're a fintech company or you're a, you know, you're a loans company, basically. But we followed it in the past. It had gotten profitable for a couple quarters, at least on an adjusted basis. The stock performed well, but... You know, it's like Warren Buffett says, you know, when you're everybody floats when the tide's in, it's when the tide goes out, you see who's uh, naked, swimming, who's swimming naked, naked yeah. I guess. And and that was probably the case here. You know, now, you know, a lot of that capital has been sucked out of the tech space, out of the fintech space. And companies actually have to have real business models that are producing um, earnings and cash flow. So, you know, in terms of value it, getting on the cheap, I don't know how you value it if it's not profitable. Yeah, it's very difficult. And I know they've been running down their loan books, so it's not always light comparisons. But if we look like back to 2018, they had 26.9 million, then 2019 went to 34.5 million in revenues, then 2020, 25 million, then 2021, 23, now trailing at 26.7. There's actually not a ton of growth there. Now, there may be growth in the fintech outside of the loan side, but it's still a relatively small revenue base. Um, the valuations it achieved when the stock was in the $11 range were insane. Again, you know, companies that grew up during that free money segment really, you know, just didn't have a focus on a bottom line because you didn't need one. You could raise money so easily in the market. And now the whole culture of this company and many businesses that were doing this, I think I've talked about this in the past, has to change. It's one thing to be a company that uh, you don't really have to focus on cash flow in the bottom line because you can get money so simply in the market. Now money costs more and nobody wants to give money to these companies. So they have to suddenly become a company that is minding the bottom line. How will employees like that, you know, when their stock options aren't doing as well, how will, you know, just how does the well, culture they just of that need to be managed more, yeah. right? Like if, 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 
money is easily accessible. You don't mm-hmm. have to manage the margin. I mean, that's a completely different corporate culture, no. working culture. And, and everybody gets to spend counting, when they're on the road. Counting right? the paper clips, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you, you you don't have your office parties. You know, it's a totally different corporate culture. And the question is, were they just buying growth? Because now that they're pulling back, you know, CapEx spending isn't there. Do we see no growth? Do we start to see negative growth in the business? And, you know, that's something to monitor. Again, having 2 million users is something admirable. Maybe if somebody finds that as a base they want to get their hands on, maybe one of the banks wants to buy it. But, you know, they're building their own apps as well so or, or have built in some cases. So we'll see where it goes with Mogo. But right now, um, you know, there's just great businesses out there that we can find that are actually producing cash flow and growing that just have a lesser risk profile and similar upside. So I'm not sure why we would put our money towards this until they can say we can grow, we can grow out of cash flow, and we can grow per share earnings. And uh, we don't see that right now with Mogo. So we would just sit on the sidelines and monitor till they get there. Or if they don't get there, it's never going to be investment for us. So let's move on to Brennan, where a segment where Brennan's going to prove he can read which is impressive. Yes. So um, he's going to talk about in our legendary investor series, Peter Lynch, take it away, Mr. Reader. Okay. So yes, I can read. Not very well, but I can read. Okay. So I thought that I would do an investor spotlight on Peter Lynch because yes, I can read. I'm reading his book right now. I'm only through the introduction, um, which he wrote in 2000. Two um, so this was kind of like right before we saw the fall off uh, of the uh, you know tech bubble uh, in 2000. Uh, so it, it is interesting, and I thought I could kind of relate to you know where we're seeing valuations now, or where we were seeing valuations and whatnot. Uh, and then I'll kind of share some quotes at the end. So Peter Lynch, who is he? Um, here we go. He is a proponent of value investing and helped popularize the growth at a reasonable price or GARP stock investment strategy, which is what we follow at Keystone. And essentially, he came to prominence because he managed the Magellan, I believe I'm saying that right, Magellan Fund at Fidelity Investments. Magellan? Magellan? Thanks, Ryan. Magellan Fund at Fidelity Fidelity Investments between 1977 and 1990. Um, And he produced an average annual return of 29.2% over that period, uh, which is pretty impressive. And then as well, he is the author of a few books, uh, including One Up on Wall Street, which he published in 1989. And this is the one that I'm reading. And this book is kind of more about his theory in value investing. He also published Beating the Street in 1994, which is kind of application of the strategy itself. And then also uh, Learn to Earn in 1995, which is more for teenagers and getting them interested in investing. So here's a chart just showing uh, the growth of $1 over the time that he was at Magellan. Um, So that $1 in, if it was invested in Magellan, would have turned to $28.14, whereas over that same period, the S&P 500, uh, that $1 would have only returned or turned into $6.60. So very impressive growth over that period. So I'm going to go through some quotes here uh, from the introduction. So starting off, he says, I own stocks where results depend on ancient fundamentals. A successful company enters new markets, its earnings rise, and the share price follows. The typical big winner in the Lynch portfolio takes three to 10 years or more to play out. 
He also says, I subscribe to the crusty notion that sooner or later earnings make or break an investment in equities. I could relate this back to Mogo. You know, that's something that we're seeing. The risk outweighs the reward right now. Uh, you know, if they never break into earnings, that could break the investment in Mogo. And he also says, all you need for a lifetime of successful investing is a few big winners. So I'm sure, you know, podcast listeners have heard us say very similar statements uh, to these before, um, you know, that these are very close to our strategy, because of course, we are growth at a reasonable price value investors. So he also says, you don't have to be trendy to succeed as an investor. He, he says, most great investors, such as Warren Buffett, are technophobes. They don't own what they don't understand. And an example of this would be Sona Nanotech, which, you know, we had red flags around in 2020 when they announced that they were developing the next best rapid COVID test uh, for COVID for testing for COVID-19. And it was due to their nano gold technology. And, you know, the stock did have a great run on speculation, but absolutely collapsed right back down. And we got comments back on the Internet saying, you guys don't understand the technology. Well, you're right. We don't. And that's why we stayed away from it. You know, uh, we're not scientists. Um, you know, we're fundamental value investors and we're not going to put our money in something uh, based on the hope or something that we don't understand. Now, I like this quote. Um, he says, stock market news has gone from hard to find in the 1970s to late or to the early 1980s, then easy to find in the late 1980s, then hard to get away from. You know, it's very hard to get away from, you know, the talking heads on, uh, you know, any kind of financial news. And people are advised to think long term, but the constant comment on every market gyration puts people on the edge and keeps them focused on the short term. He makes the point where realistically people shouldn't look at their portfolio, uh, you know, for every other, you know, six months, essentially. You know, you don't need to focus on what the stock market is doing day to day. And this is kind of relating to, you know, fundamentals around the tech bubble, essentially. He says, with today's hot internet stocks in the 2000, when he was writing this, fundamentals are old hat. So essentially, we saw this in 2021. Fundamentals became old hat, is what he would say, with stocks trading upwards of 100 times sales and no earnings. And he also says, thanks to the internet, 500 times earnings has lost its shock value. And so has 50 times earnings. And again, we kind of saw this, you know, just recently. Uh, he goes on to say, the dot-com is enough to convince today's optimists to pay for a decade's worth of growth and prosperity in advance. So as an investor, you know, when the market gets completely overvalued or, or specific names get overvalued, essentially you're paying, um, you know, a premium uh, for their growth. And, uh, you know, it takes them... Um, or yeah, I mean, just generally, you, you don't want to overpay uh, and pay, you know, 50 to 500 times earnings for, you know, some of these businesses, because it's going to take them a long time to grow into uh, that actual valuation. And lastly, wonderful companies become risky investments when people overpay for them. And he uses the example of McDonald's, where in 1972, the stock was bid up to 50 times earnings with no way to live up to these expectations for growth, the, the price fell from $75 to $25, which presented a great buying opportunity at a more realistic 13 times earnings. And these essentially are just his books here. 
And yeah, that sums it up. I just think that, uh, you know, he's a growth at a reasonable price investor. Uh, I'm really enjoying the read. A lot of what he says, uh, you know, relates exactly to what Ryan and Aaron uh, have taught and, you know, preach and have preached over all of these years. And uh, yeah, if I come across any more quotes, I'll definitely bring them up on the uh, the podcast as well. Um, and any of his real life examples. He likes to use real life examples, which is good. I like the quotes, um, you know, especially <laughs> when he's talking about how uh, stock information became yes. easy to access in the 80s and then hard to get away from. And I imagine that that's, he's talking like in 2000 around, right? So imagine like mm -hmm. he wasn't even like fast forward to now. It's 10 times what that of, was. No. It's uh, yeah. 100 times. I mean, social yeah. media, you know, more yeah. people on the internet. It's just people are absolutely inundated with information about unlimited things all the time. And the problem with that is that a lot of information creates the illusion that you're well-informed, but actually in many ways it, it can also do the opposite because you become overwhelmed with the information you're, you're, you're constantly guessing. But one, one question I have about Peter Lynch is, um, so he seems to his entire investment career or the career that he's famous for um, was between 1977 and 1990. So about 13 years, um, has he done anything or said anything in the last 20 25 or 23 Not years? really. From my understanding, no. he retired at, I believe he was only 46, I believe, in mm -hmm. 1990. And he retired and then he just kind of started doing his own investing and kind of philanthropy. Uh, so he mm -hmm. does give away a lot of his money. And then as well, I believe that he's actually still with Fidelity, uh, where essentially he kind of mentors the young analysts. Um, now, right. I don't know if he's still doing that, but... He he did like George Seinfeld in the episode of, of Se uh, in Seinfeld or George Costanza. Sorry, yeah, he yeah. Uh, he got out when he was on top, right? Remember that episode where he's yeah, like, no, oh, I was gonna say, I'm getting out on a good note, and he got out, out on a good there. note because he I mean, continues he actually, to be. If yes. you if you Google the best investors of all time mm -hmm. right now, you know you're gonna find Warren Buffett right at the top of the list, um, and you'll usually find Peter Lynch at number two. But like his career was relatively short. I mean, yeah. 13 years and you know, that ended, I mean, that ended like 32 years ago. Um, yeah. The, so you know, Brennan, the, the, like, I was just going to say the Magellan fund, it is Magellan. It comes from, do you know where it comes from? The name? I don't No, I don't. Ferdinand Magellan. He was like a Portuguese explorer. Like, yeah, he, oh, okay. his, he was his the first credited to circumnavigate. With the, circumnavigate. Oh, yeah. yeah. Were, that, so that's kind of where the fund got its name. From. Interesting. I but didn't know that. Yeah. Like history. Investment fund to circumnavigate the globe. It's, it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> it, exactly. I think it travels the world for great investment opportunities. He did himself. They're just the fund did without him. So, but yeah. <laughs> no, um, I thought, you'd know, the Magellan, cause I make that quote about the 10 stocks, if you like those and that's, he managed the Magellan fund. And I've literally made that. Uh, <laughs> Ryan thinks we like, listen to his speeches. <laughs> <laughs> I thought at least I thought at least Brennan would. I thought at least Brennan would be listening to them at one point, or because he had to edit them. Yeah, it, apparently you pretend well. So that's all we want on that. I mean, I think the quotes, like yeah. Aaron said, they're great, great quotes. quotes um, yeah. Like no, making two or three investments that are great investments in your life can change your life, and it, mm -hmm. it's true. Like I literally gave a speech without reading that book about that topic and it is true like then some of the most boring businesses that you can understand the boids of the world the expels of the world uh juxtaposed against like 
the latest technology in Sono nanotech or Cielo yeah. waste or, you know, exactly. revolutionizing the disposal of waste. Like how about just a business that creates a ton of cash flow that everybody needs and keeps growing with great management? Like forget about all the other crap and just invest in those. And it's kind of what he's saying in those and how impactful if you grab one or two of those in your entire investing lifetime can have in your portfolio. And this is when we're going through the TSX and the venture right now, and we're going through 3000 companies in the US, when we go through all those businesses, you know, that's what we're looking for. Maybe, maybe it's an exciting business, or maybe it's a boring little business that just keeps presenting and pushing cash flow out and has uh, you know, a competitive advantage and is going to grow that over time. And we just found a company, a really obscure company in the US that is profiling towards that. It doesn't mean it's going to be one of those ultimate successful companies in your portfolio. But if you get that company, get 15 or 20 in your portfolio that have that criteria, two or three of them, or, you know, becomes one of those companies that has tremendous long-term returns that can power your portfolio over the next couple decades. And that's what exactly. we're looking to do. Even so in the introduction. Finding that model of companies. Yeah. Even in the introduction, he made, makes the case where it's like, you know, you only need 50% of your stocks in your portfolio to do well and have some very like, you know, strong, strong outperformers in there, in that group. And the other 50 could technically go to zero and you'd still be up essentially. I mean, it depends on what return you're getting, obviously in those, uh, you know, specific securities, but you know, He's just making the case that exactly that two to three, you know, great. Yeah, we, we literally really had the real world example of a client who had taken 15 stocks and like put 50,000 or in, in, you know, each of them. And one of them happened to be Expel. And that $50,000 investment uh, was worth uh, 2 million on its own. And I think the original investment was around a million in that range. So even if all 19 other stocks, you know, something like that went to zero, you'd still be 50% or a hundred percent higher in that portfolio, which is shocking. You know, the goal is not to have every other, all 19 yeah. stocks. And go those, to zero. those types of stocks, I mean, they come around yeah. rarely, but they do come around and, and you know, yeah. you don't have to take. And you're talking about maybe two in your life. If you can get two in your mm -hmm. life, you're going to do well in your portfolio. And it's, it's hard to get two in your life. Let's, let's, let's be completely honest with that. It is hard, but Going with a profile of the stocks that we're talking about, you have a chance to do that. You don't have a chance if you're just looking for a hope and a prayer. You're going to end up with zero instead of, uh, you know, a profitable business that can grow. You know, one of the- All right, now owners, let's- Or actually, go on, go on. Yeah, yeah we go, go. What were you saying? I'm just, just going to move on say, to the next segment. So. You know, one of the big winners that he references over the time of, you know, in the 1990s is Dell. You know, and it's just that was an easy mm -hmm. trend to follow. They were really getting profitable, and you know, ten thousand dollars invested in Dell in the in the yeah nineteen nineties, I believe, turned to eight point nine million. You know, over that decade. Um, anyway, that's an okay return. Project. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, not yeah. bad. Yeah. Anyways, not bad. It's amazing. Yeah. So let's move on, Star and Dog, so we can get out of here. Uh, we like to do the dog first, right? And end on the star. We end on that positive note. So the dog. Yeah, it's actually well, dog and star. The segment. Yeah. So it's dog and star, but somehow that sounds. Yeah. I like star and dog. Yeah, me too. No, it's, it's true. Dog and star. Yeah. But so star and dog, starting with the dog, Tesla really needs no introduction, but Brett's going to take it. 
Yeah, we're, we're, we're still going to introduce it. And actually, uh, we'll, uh-huh. we'll go back to Peter Lynch for a second. I, I really think uh, one of his quotes, which he did say, uh, wonderful companies become risky investments when people overpay for them. I think that's really uh-huh. been the story of Tesla. You always have people saying they, they want to invest in growth, that all the values in the future, it's all priced in. It's at whatever $300 it was, even after the split, it was still in value. But over the last year, we've obviously seen the opposite. So let's get into it. Tesla symbol TSLA on the NASDAQ designs, develops, manufactures, leases, and sells electric vehicles and energy generation and storage systems in the U.S. The company operates in its two segments, automotive, energy generation, and storage. Tesla did see a brutal 2020-22, and it has not stopped, at least for the first day of trading in 2022, falling 12% yesterday. It is a bit up today at the time of recording, and I think it was a few percent, so a bit bit better you know but it's still absolutely just been hammered over the past month down 41 percent and it, at the time of when i was writing this it was a 108 with a market cap of 339 billion tesla's drop over the past year as well as the specifically last month or two can be attributed to i found three factors macroeconomics weakening delivery performance and of course the ever so visible CEO Elon Musk's actions. First, let's go over the macro conditions, which normally I wouldn't really touch on these for an individual stock, but I'm specifically highlighting these because the CEO Elon Musk highlighted them and he attributed the high interest rates. So when high interest rates are starting to shift from the low to the high, you'll start to see valuations go down. This is due to a somewhat technical factor. When you're Comparing two things, let's do a bond versus a stock. If you can get, let's say now 4% from a bond when before you're getting effectively maybe 1% from a treasury at best for quite a while, you're going to shift to the bonds because it's lower risk naturally. So you have to get a higher return from the equity. So in Tesla's case, since a lot of his growth was down the line with his high valuations when it was at 50, 60 PE or even higher at times. Now, all this future growth has to be discounted at that higher rate. So we add in that higher discount rate. So, or you can just think of it as an interest rate and it'll create a lower valuation. This is what Elon Musk highlighted why the stock has dropped so much. But even with that, it's it's partially true. It is true. But that affects every single financial asset, not just stocks, not just bonds. It affects real estate. It affects even commodity futures. Everything interest rates is embedded in. So it's not just the dominant reason. It is really overvaluing how much interest rates affected his stock. But something he can control, whether you agree with him or not, his actions has affected the stock. His shenanigans with Twitter over the first well, three quarters of 2022 before he bought it. And then now he's offloaded an additional 20 million shares at mid-December, which is about 5% of his holdings, but he does hold a significant amount which has further pressured the stock downwards. So his actions, as well as the views of people, so he's sold stocks, he's made obviously a ton of political opinions, which I'm not going to go into too much, but it has really uh, put a dampening on many investors and as well as customers. So that's operational as well as financial side. Then third, perhaps the most important factor for the company itself is it is seeing a slowdown in operations. So just yesterday, the Q422 Delivery report came out below expectations for both analysts as well as Tesla itself. Productions did grow dramatically, 47% year over year. But when you're pricing in these high growth rates, 
if it comes in even a bit short, it's investors start to get a bit skeptical, especially with what's been going on in the broader economic conditions in the market. And as well, production has outpaced delivery. So you may be wondering, why is that such a big deal? It means that they're starting to build up inventory, which means demand can be lower. That's not an absolute, but it just does generally hint at it. So while the full earnings report is to be, re- be released on January 25th, which could result in another spike up or down, we will see. I think it's going to be quite volatile. It is now our dog of the week for now. And I'll open up to you guys if you have any comments. Yeah, it's 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 inter- well, there's a few things. One thing I want to mention is that Tesla was one of the um, more highly valued stocks in in 2021. Um, and now if, if I'm going to look at, at analyst estimates, which, you know, you really have to take these with a grain of salt, but um, analysts are estimating, I think, about four dollars in earnings per share for the current year. And then for that to increase to five thirty or almost five thirty for next year. So doing the math on that, you know, you're looking at about twenty one times next year's expected earnings. Now, I, I, I expect these these ratcheted down. Probably they're going to be they're going to be revised downwards almost certainly. I mean, analysts are very there. There's always some stickiness to revising the estimate downward because you're admitting that you were wrong in the first place, and it's just human nature. So I would expect those, but certainly, I mean, you're seeing a complete revaluation of the stock, right? Um, one thing, and yeah, another thing is just you know the topic of Elon Musk. I'm, Musk. I mean, it really does seem over the last year his he's really politicized his brand, which. I don't think is a good idea for a CEO because you're, you know, especially in the United States. Now it's a global market for Teslas, but especially in the United States, when you politicize your brand, you're, you're essentially turning away, you know, potentially 50% of your customers either way. Right. So, you know, generally speaking, I don't think that it's, it's a great idea. And you would think as well, you know, with Tesla being electric car company, you know, there's, there's the, there's the climate change aspect to it. You know, you probably have more customers that tend to be from the left, I would think, in the United States. Um, so, you know, for that reason, some CEOs, I think the smart ones, just don't make their company about their personality. They make it about their product more. Um, and then there's just a lot of things with how, I mean, how much of a CEO can he really be of Tesla when he's spending, it seems to be like most of his time on Twitter. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, with the economy potentially continuing to slow, um, you know, rates remaining high, maybe they're not going to continue to go up, maybe they'll even come down towards the end of the year, um, but still remaining high. And then a lot of other, comp- a lot of competition coming online for electric vehicles. I wouldn't be necessarily in a hurry to jump in on Tesla stock right now. That's for sure. Even though the valuation does look a lot better than it was. Yeah, I mean, I think it's ironic that social media, I think it's underpublicized how much it helped uh, Elon Musk build Tesla, like without having um, the expense of marketing, being able to have his massive following on there, just tweet out something using Twitter, for example, or put it out on another social platform and have hundreds of millions of, you know, even billion people looking at that tweet without having to pay a single dime. Um, it sets them apart from, you know, Ford has to spend millions, billions for a Super Bowl ad to launch a product, for example, or something like that. And Tesla can tweet out something and it gets the same effect. And then they had a cult like following of people who are following this cult of personality. Right. And, and if you start to eat away at that, you know, and he's eating away at that, 
via his actions on Twitter, which is from social media. So it's ironic that now that that could be, you know, that's what's really sinking the stock. Valuations were what was crazy, though, you know, too, on the stock. And, you know, you're starting to maybe get into a territory where they're starting to look better if you believe the growth going forward. But now do they, you know, again, do they face more competition? Their balance sheet looks a hell of a lot better than their competition, mm -hmm. though. I would say that, too. So we got to take that into effect. But, yeah, but I mean, the, as more car companies always, come out with, yeah. with, you know, other vehicles that, you know, like, I mean, Tesla had the cool factor. Now you see, you know, cause you didn't see many Teslas around. So you'd see a yeah. Tesla and it'd be like, oh my God, that person has a Tesla. It was a sign of status. Now you see more yeah. Teslas around, still a sign of status, I would say, but less so. Um, but now you're going to see, you know, BMW, some other electric vehicles. There's just going to be a lot more competition. So, you know, yeah. CEO branding completely aside, I think that's, probably would have been a major risk to Tesla anyways. But there, there are people say in the last six months to year, I mean, maybe in the last three months more accelerating that I don't want to own saying these statements. I don't want to own Tesla because I don't like Elon Musk. And that oh, wasn't absolutely. there six no. months to a year ago. I mean, there was a few. His but it's brand was a positive, more. I'd say, yes. you know, one to two years ago. And it probably and still it is overall, like... but you hurt that, right? And, and that's, that's a factor. I mean, it yeah. is a factor because if, you start to get like to like in cars. Like if people start comparing Tesla's technology to, um, you know, an electric car from a competitor uh, and it's like to like, like then you need brand, right? And if your brand is getting tarnished, you know, there is a hurt there to the, to the mm -hmm. overall. Personally, uh, I'd rather invest in a company where the CEO doesn't make it about his own personality. Yeah. Um, for the most yeah. part, I just think that that's just a more rational perspective because it's, should be more about the product. If we look at the fundamentals and if Tesla continues to grow at similar to the rate that it does now, and you can buy it for the price that you can, and it has a, a solid balance sheet, you know, it is uh, interesting, but oh, you yeah. put that into doubt with the items we're going over right now. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that that's investing. It wouldn't be this I mean, certainly if it starts hitting next year's targets on a relative the fundamentals basis, look good, but it's cheap. still, yeah you know, at around a hundred dollars, then yeah, it, it starts to look interesting at that point, but we'll yeah. see. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. And we'll continue to monitor that throughout the year for sure. Now you've got a star for us, totally <laughs> obscure relative to Tesla. Well, many brands are, but this is a tiny micro cap on the Canadian market. Ibex. Well, that, uh, that's why I kind of, I, I went with it. I wanted that contrast. So me and Ryan were talking about this yesterday, and we were going. You mean back their and forth, CEO? Their CEO? Their CEO isn't out there, you know, tweeting every yeah. five minutes about. Yeah, it's it's a little. And different. even if nobody he was, nobody would probably. Nobody would care. No one would care. So he yeah. could be out there doing that. Yeah. So I, I will preface this: this is about a twenty million dollar market cap, and this is after what we've seen. So let's get into yeah. it. So the star of the week is Ibex Technology, symbol IBT, on the TSX Venture Exchange. It is a biotechnology company specializing in manufacturing the enzymes, or enzymes, I should say. Ibex sells enzymes directly to third-party manufacturers for medical devices, quality control labs, no molecular weight, heparin manufacturing, and academic research institutions. The stock has jumped 58% over the past month and is currently trading at 76 cents a share. The jump in price can be partially attributed to its Q1 2023 release on the 21st of December, but it was starting to go up a bit before that. So really, what, what are we going into here? Earnings and revenue 
were effectively flat. So not great news, obviously. Normally when these small companies come around, you're expecting growth behind it. But no, that, that's not what happened here. But the thing is, weakness was expected. And IBEX initially in during COVID really benefited from the demand for hemostasis tests, which I probably am butchering half these pronunciations, by the way. So you can uh, berate me in the comments. And hemostasis tests were are important for uh, COVID testing and uh, hospitalization-related uh, illnesses. So the demand for products has now dropped, causing headwinds for the top line, so that being revenue. Additionally, the company is expecting weaker earnings due to its R&D spending for a diazomase di line, another one of those hard words there. And together, these has effectively created a negative expectation of the stock. So when you're coming in flat with negative expectations, it's actually a good thing. So, and as well, this is a very small micro cap. Like I said, it's the opposite of Tesla. And because of that, any news, even neutral news like this or relative positive news can be seen as a great thing. And really, when it has a strong financial backing, it was featured in our cash cash rich report in 2022, as well as our Canadian growth and opportunity report with this cash position of 8.2 million, which is over 40% of its market capitalization at its current now higher price. So before it was 60, 70%, depending on the exact day and quarter, the cash position in the stock just gives such a good buffer for companies like this. So any news which can give any of these future growth opportunities really a pump up like it did here, we're starting to see these uh, stock price catalysts. And as, as well, when you're getting that low, you can start to see some acquisition like what Ryan has previously predicted for a cashless report in a previous podcast show. Not, that might not happen, but for now it is our star of the week. And I, I just did a quick look at the financials here. So they've it looks like they've produced about 3.2 million in operating mm -hmm. cash flow over the last four quarters. I mean, not bad. You take, you know, that 18, 19 million dollar market cap, 8.2 million in cash, 3.2 million in cash flow. Um, not saying that it's it's a buy or anything, but uh, at least there's something there to look at. Exactly. Like it's nothing big, but it's 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 at least something there, unlike some micro caps this size. And Ryan is finally back. He disappeared for a second. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I missed the last part of what you said there because my Mac and I blame Brennan just completely died in the middle of uh, that. So sorry. I blame Brennan. Uh, anyways, I'm just, I, I know that diamase, which is an enzyme which targets a uh, person suffering, I think, histamine intolerance, it's going to be marketed as a nutraceutical in their MDNA. I don't know if you mentioned this, but they, they said they're approaching an inflection point in the development of diamase where if they continue expenses for research and production of the food grade finished product, it will significantly increase and have a negative impact. Expenses will increase, have a negative impact on profitability. So really good numbers. Uh, growth, obviously, in the last quarter in terms of revenues, which is flat, basically, and, and income is flat on a relative basis. You know, the cash balance is really strong. Um, no debt in this business and cash just keeps increasing. Uh, so cash rich, relatively decent fundamentals, but you know, it has moved up and we expect probably like, there's not a lot of guidance at all from management and they really are nebulous on the terms of where, whether or not they can continue to grow going forward. So you're kind of flying in the dark a little bit with the business. I think that, you know, it kind of just got recognized. I think that's why the market uh, put it higher, bid up the stock. 
Uh, now it's probably in a fair value range. If you start to see declining earnings for a number of reasons, you know, then it might drop down again. Uh, you know, without guidance from management, it's hard to look forward on the business. Certainly a good balance sheet, building that up. Maybe somebody wants to buy the company at some point, but uh, yeah, I, I didn't hear the last part of yeah. what your argument was on it. So, I mean, it's something in that probably along those mm -hmm. lines. Yeah, right? quite close. We, we, we did talk about this yesterday, but it's, it's, yeah. it's an interesting company. It's one which... It certainly is, yeah. Mm -hmm. Produces cash flow, produce, has a great balance sheet, and, you know, has good earnings. Like, it, when it was trading at 30 cents, you know, it, it really is, a, you know, an opportunity there. But, you know, again, management didn't have a ton of guidance going forward then. It, it wasn't... It was kind of a surprise to see the earnings jump over the course of this year, past year as they did. They may flatten out now. And there may have been some purchases pulled forward from some clients that maybe uh, uh, level off over the course of this year. But we'll continue to monitor them. Certainly, an industry interesting little cash-rich microcap. I think that's going to end us off for this week. We're good. We're good. No other comments. Well, keep your questions coming in for our your stock our take segments. If you want us to debate any stocks, send those in, and we'll look at them. Uh, keep your comments on YouTube. We'd love to see those there. We're going to comment more on those uh, going into 2023. Uh, again, I wish you all happy new year. Smash that subscribe button and uh, profitable investing. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>